Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Natural Curiosity Project. I'm Steve Shepard. As a lot of you know, I live in Vermont, way up in the northeastern United States. From my house, it's about a 30-minute drive to the Canadian border. Montreal is about a half an hour further. My point is, it gets cold up here. At least I thought it did until I took a trip a few years ago to Minneapolis in January. I was working there for a week, and one evening I went out to dinner with a friend who lives up there. She suggested that we have dinner at a restaurant over in St. Paul, just across the Mississippi from Minneapolis, because it happened to be the week of Winter Carnival. It was really great. They had a gigantic ice sculpture in the middle of downtown. They had skating rinks and huge, incredibly intricate ice sculptures, some of them like 20 feet tall. But I was kind of disappointed that some of them were on the ground in pieces. And so I said to her, why would somebody do that? Do what? She responded. Well, knock down those sculptures, I replied. I mean, people worked really hard to create them. Nobody knocked them down, she responded. It's too cold for the ice. Okay, I had no response to that too cold for the ice? Are you kidding me? But it turns out that she was right. It was about 40 below zero in St. Paul, with no wind, by the way, and that is cold. So I did a bit of homework, and here's what I learned. Most liquids shrink as they cool, but water, because of a phenomenon called hydrogen bonding, only shrinks to a point. Until it gets to about 39.2 degrees Fahrenheit, it shrinks like any other liquid. But below that, things get kind of squirrely. Below 39.2 degrees, it switches directions and starts to expand until its temperature reaches 32 degrees, the freezing point of water, at which point it starts to pick up speed and expands by about 9%. It's this sudden expansion after a period of contraction that can cause stress fractures in the ice sculptures and send them tumbling to the ground. Well, my friend demonstrated just how cold it was the next day. In the kitchen at her office where I was working, not, not in the kitchen, but in the company, she took a pot, filled it with water, and heated it until it was just in a roiling boil. She, she then asked me to open the door to the adjacent courtyard, which I did. She took the pot, walked outside, and threw the boiling water into the air. It instantly turned to snow and fell to the ground. My only comment was, you live here? So it doesn't take much to freeze a small amount of water. Our bodies are about 60% water, which is why we're so susceptible to frostbite if we leave skin uncovered on a cold day. But some creatures, especially those that are microscopic or near-microscopic, can be as much as 90% water, which seems to me would make them far more sensitive to freezing than we are. But the other day, I was out in the forest near my home in Vermont, taking a long winter hike, and I saw something that really puzzled me. It was plenty cold, about 5 degrees above zero, and I had stopped under a tree to take a break. Looking down at the ground, I thought I saw something move, but there was nothing there but snow and a bit of dirt. It looked like ground pepper, at least till it moved. So I got down on my hands and knees to get a closer look, and what I saw was really cool. The little flecks were all in a little depression in the snow, and when I looked closely, I saw that they were little bugs, about an eighth of an inch long with tiny legs and antennae. They looked like tiny shrimp, and in fact, they were hopping around in their little snow depression like popcorn. So two questions immediately came to mind. The first was, what were these little critters? And the second was, why aren't they freezing instantly like the boiling water in Minnesota? Well, off to the books I went, as I'm prone to do, and soon discovered that these little creatures are called snow fleas, although technically they're called springtails, and there are a lot of them out there. 
According to one article I read, there are about 250 million of them in every acre of land, and that's a good thing because they eat organic material and poop out more soil. Another interesting little factoid is that they aren't really insects, because just about everything about them that would normally be used to classify them is different than insects. Their body has fewer segments, their eyes are different, and they molt far more than any other bug out there. Another question I wanted to know about is the jumping, which I assumed, incorrectly as it turned out, was because they simply didn't want to sit on the cold snow. No, these little creatures have a tiny little organ on their belly called a furcula that works like a spring. When they trigger it, it flips them into the air about a hundred times their body length. That would be the equivalent of you jumping the length of two American football fields. And while they can't control the direction, it gets them away from a potential predator. So let's get back to the business of not freezing to death in Vermont's frigid winters. Most insects are like reptiles and amphibians. They're cold-blooded, meaning that their body temperature changes according to the ambient temperature. They can't control it like warm-blooded mammals can. The problem with this is that when a creature's body temperature drops below the freezing point of water, ice forms in their tissues, and that ice can be nasty. It tears apart tissues and destroys internal organs, usually killing the animal. So how do these snow fleas manage to survive? And for that matter, how do other cold-blooded animals do it, like frogs and turtles that spend the winter buried in the mud at the bottom of a pond? In the case of the springtails, they manage to survive in a couple of ways. The easiest thing that some of them do is to just allow their bodies to completely dehydrate, which eliminates the problem of freezing water. But most of these springtails have developed a form of antifreeze in their blood that prevents the water from freezing. That's how most of them survive. So I did a little digging into the chemistry behind all this, and it's actually really interesting. The compound they create in their bodies to prevent freezing is called an AFP, for antifreeze protein. They're also called thermal hysteresis proteins, a far more impressive name to memorize so that you can casually toss it out the next time you and a friend are walking in the woods on a snowy day and you see some snow fleas hanging out. Anyway, at the molecular level, these AFPs bind to the front face of a growing ice crystal, creating micro-curvatures that make it harder for water molecules to bind to the surface, thus preventing the damage caused by ice buildup in the animal's tissues. These AFPs are indeed protein molecules, but they have a large sugar group attached to them, which makes them chemically similar to the antifreeze you put in your car. And yes, other cold-blooded animals like frogs and turtles also secrete a form of AFP to protect their tissues during the long, cold winter. Now, I think this is kind of interesting, but there's more to the story. It turns out that there's a lot of professional interest in these naturally occurring antifreeze compounds because they could be used to preserve human organs intended for transplantation in extremely cold solutions without the danger of them freezing and being damaged by ice crystals. In fact, in 2005, a group of researchers in Israel preserved a rat's heart for 21 hours in a freezing cold AFP solution that was collected from an Arctic fish. The heart was then transplanted into a recipient rat where it beat normally, none the worse for wear. Pretty cool, no pun intended. Hey, if you'd like to see a short video that I shot of the snow fleas hopping around in the snow, narrated by my little granddaughter, go to YouTube and search for Springtails Springing. For the Natural Curiosity Project, I'm Steve Shepard. I hope you find these little programs interesting. I sure do. The mission of the Natural Curiosity Project is to tell the stories of amazing moments in scientific discovery and accomplishment. 
If there's a story you'd like to hear or would like to suggest a story or just want to chat about the amazing world of science, please send a message to steve at shepherdcom.com. That's steve at s-h-e-p-a-r-d-c-o-m-m dot com.